Hey, what's up, everybody? Hope you're having a great start to your week. Hope you had a great weekend. Happy Halloween to everybody out there. Um, hope that you have a great trick-or-treat tonight. If you haven't gotten started already, you can uh, pregame with some TNC. Then go get your trick-or-treat on or your party on, whatever you guys are doing. Me, I will be locked down at home. Um, this is TNC 335, the Neutral Corner Boxing Podcast. I am your host, Michael Montero. Very, very tired host, a very, very disheveled host. Uh, you, you may have noticed that um, I uh, have not combed my hair, <laughs> that I have some circles under my eyes. I'm very pale today. Yeah, I haven't been in the sun or gotten much sleep um, <clears throat> in the past week. So this will not be my most professional show. But uh, also, I don't have phone lines open, guys. Um, we're probably going to go for about 45, 60 minutes. If I get through my spiel, my review preview and all that uh, earlier than I'm, I'm guessing it will go, then perhaps I'll open the phone lines and uh, we'll do that. But um, as you guys know, um, I, um, my wife uh, gave birth to our, our daughter, Jacqueline Olivia Montero um, about a week ago. And um, so we got through the first week. I right. got through the first weekend with her. All right. And um you know, it's, it's, uh, people say it's very, very difficult. Yeah, it's difficult. It's just, it's, it's really not that hard. It's just, you don't get a lot of sleep. So that's where I'm at right now, but don't worry. Uh, the champ will return to his form in due time in the coming weeks. Okay. That I promise you guys, but, um, I apologize for not having phones open right now. The, the thing is guys, um, I, I can't do a two hour show right now. My, my wife needs me. So even me being able to get away for, you know, 45 minutes or so, um, that's, you know, she's making a sacrifice, you know, for me to do that. So um, my hope is that I could do a Friday show and we could do a full Friday show. I'll be a lot more coherent. I'll have more energy and um, <laughs> yeah, we could have phones for that. Okay. Because we actually have some good fights to look forward to um, this weekend. So uh, real quick, um, thank you guys for, for watching the show. And by the way, um, all the congratulations you guys have sent me, Several of you have sent gifts and stuff like that. And just uh, we've gotten congratulations literally from hundreds and hundreds of you around the world. That really means so much. You guys really, really are family. You guys are our boxing family. And um, it just feels awesome, man. Um, all the crap that I take sometimes, um, particularly on Twitter, sometimes um, that's difficult to deal with, um, you know, having the mob come after you. But just the outpouring of love and support that I've received and uh, my wife, of course, and my, my daughter I've received from you guys uh, the last week has been so amazing, man. Really, really amazing, guys. So we, we feel the love and it's, it's been great. Seriously. I might as well tell you guys uh, real quick, just the story of how Jacqueline got here. And then I promise we'll get to boxing because I know there's some of you on the show that say, oh, don't talk about yourself. I'm sorry. You're going to have to listen to me talk about myself for three minutes on my own show. I know. The horror. It's so hard, right? Okay. So, look, real quick. Um, Jacqueline's original due date was Tuesday, October 25th. That was the original due date. But she um, kind of uh, – she was a breech baby. She kind of got stuck with her head up in, uh, in, in her mother's womb. And the reason for that is – she's tall. She's, she's got her dad's long limbs and she was kind of too big and she got stuck like that. So we had to schedule a C-section. So we scheduled it for Monday, October 24th. And 
Tiffany and I had this great weekend planned. We were going to have one last weekend where we can just relax and get everything, you know, set up and scheduled. And we were supposed to sleep in Monday, this Monday. And the C-section, or I'm sorry, last Monday, I've lost my mind, last Monday. And um, the C-section was scheduled for noon last Monday. So we were going to get to sleep in. It was going to be great, right? So what happens is we go out to dinner Saturday night, the 22nd. Real nice dinner, made reservations, you know, super fancy, nice steakhouse we went to. It was, it was cool. That was our last, like, nice dinner before Jackie was going to get here. And then Sunday morning at 4 a.m., Tiffany turns on the lights in the bedroom and says, Mike, wake up. My water just broke. So Jackie wanted to get here a day early. She didn't want to wait. So we had to drive right to the hospital at four in the morning. And a few hours later, it was actually 9.55 a.m. Sunday, the 23rd. Jacqueline Olivia Montero was born. And um, we really didn't get to sleep for like 48 hours. Actually, Tiffany got to sleep the first few days more than me because at the hospital, you know, they had her medicated and everything, healing up. And um, she was able to take naps here and there when they would take Jackie to the nursery because the first couple of days the baby's there, they got to do tests and they got to measure everything and make sure everything's good to go. And they got to give her some, um, I think like hep C or one of the heps uh, vaccines, you know, stuff like that. So they take the baby away to the nursery a few times a day and Tiffany would get to pass out. There's just this tiny little bench in that room I, my big ass six foot four gumpy ass, I couldn't sleep on that thing. So I didn't get any damn sleep for like over 48 hours. I was delirious, but we got home. Uh, we figured it out and uh, it took the first few nights were tough, but over this weekend, we figured it out. My sister actually came down, came down South and uh, has stayed with us. She's actually here now helping out a little bit. That's been awesome. Just having her here to like cook and stuff like that's been great. Anyway, so that's the story of how Jackie got here. She could not wait one extra day. She wanted to come a day early and ruin her mom and dad's plans of having one last relaxing Sunday before she got here. So that's the story with that. Anyway, um, so that's it, guys. Uh, that's what I've been dealing with for like the last week. Um, guys, let me get to some super chats real quick. One from Aaron. Thank you so much, brother. He says, yo, Mike, traveling twice to the world's most livable city, and in the only livable country in 2022 to take four belts off a B-level guy is more impressive than coming off a war and beating a guy 25 pounds bigger. Damn, Aaron, tell me how you really feel, bro. Uh, that's great. We'll talk about that later on in the show. I promise you, bro. Thank you so much. Um, thank you very much. And then we got one from Gail Falkenthal. So much. Thank you so much, Gail. I'm skipping words here. Thank you so much. Uh, she says, welcome to the world, Jackie Montero. Warm wishes from the West Coast to the whole family. Thank you so much, Gail. And um, by the way, I already got her fighter name all picked out. Check this out, guys. Jackie the Ripper Montero. Come on. Come on. You can't do any better than that. I thought about the jackhammer. That, I mean, that's kind of cool, play on words. But Jackie the Ripper, especially if I teach her to dig like left hooks to the body, Jackie the Ripper Montero, that is her fighter name. And come on, how, how can you not love that, right? All right, let's um, let's get into some news and notes, shall we? Shall we do this? We're already about 10 minutes in. So let's jump into that. And then um, we got a lot to review and preview. We actually had a lot of boxing last weekend, right? A lot. Uh, first of all, I'm going to show you guys this. This is... 
the latest issue of the ring magazine, the November, December, 2022 issue. It's also the last issue of the magazine ever. You heard that right. This is the last issue of the ring magazine to ever be printed. And that's why I'm not taking it out of the packaging. They shipped it to me and, uh, yeah, this will be the last one that I get, uh, my last contributor copy. So as a contributor, you know, you would get put on the distribution list and I'd get a copy of the magazine every month. This is my last one. And um, it's it's bittersweet. So it was talked about a lot last week. Um, a lot of you guys have asked me about this. There's been a lot of conjecture about the ring um, and my relationship with the ring, a lot of you guys have asked me that, but also just the ring magazine in general. And I haven't talked a whole lot about this. Um, maybe in the future, I'll talk some, a little bit more about it, but I'm sure you guys have noticed certain people leaving the ring. Tom Gray over in the UK, uh, longtime contributor, um, actually editor, you know, I was right up there with Doug Fisher in his role. He announced recently that he's leaving. Um, let's see. Uh, Michael Woods was, uh, contributing for a while. He left recently. I mean, there's been several contributors that have walked away. Um, I will be walking away and I will be uh, moving on to a new role with a new platform. And I'll talk more about that in the coming weeks. So uh, I haven't wanted to put any of this on record until I got some money situation figured out. And um, I'm saddled up now with the ring, which is all good. So I could talk about that. But listen, um, this is indicative of the times. Okay. Um, the Ring Magazine uh, is the last, I mean, it's the Bible of boxing, right? It's been around for 100 years, in print for 100 years. It was the last uh, fight magazine dedicated specifically to boxing in the United States. And now it's gone. It will still be, there will be a website, of course, ringtv.com. And the ratings and all that will still exist. And, and you guys can um, get the digital version of the magazine. But if we're being honest, that's really, at least for me, but I'm, a, you know, I'm, I'm old. I'm 43 years old, but I, I look at it like, well, that's pretty much like every other site then. What's the difference between ringtv.com and ESPN site or boxing scene site or whoever it is? Um, it's all digital. It's all, it's all websites. And it's just, you know, who, which platform you prefer, their style, um, their take on things, their ratings, whatever it is. Right. Um, so yeah, that of course is, is different between sites, but the presentation is basically the same thing. You're, you're, you're getting your information, your news and everything from digital platforms. And so this is just indicative of the times. And it's actually, I think, a testament to the ring and to the people that were contributing to the ring, um, which included myself, but more so guys like Doug Fisher, Tom Gray, those, those guys, for keeping it in print for so long, for keeping it going. And um, the... The, the pandemic hit it pretty hard. Also, uh, you know, when Canelo left, that was a that was a tough blow. The COVID pandemic was a tough blow. Ryan Garcia, Virgil Ortiz, Jaime Munguia, Zerto Ramirez, those guys not being crazy, crazy active and not fighting consistently the best opposition out there enough. Um, you know, the, the, that's kind of hurt the bottom line, of course, because uh, Golden Boy Promotions, owns the magazines. So, so there's a lot of different things that are, have contributed to, uh, to this, but, um, I will say that it, it's been cool to have been a contributor to the magazine for the last four or five years to the site, but you know, it, it's time for me to go into a different direction, uh, as several other people 
involved um, in that publication are going to be going in a different direction soon. And I think you're going to see more of that too in the coming year or so. And I'll just leave it at that for now. All right. So um, if you haven't got this last issue, I definitely grab it because it will obviously become a collector's item. All right. The only other news topic other than Jackie being here at Ring Magazine is we got to keep up this Spence versus Crawford day count, right? Because we're almost at 365, guys. So today, today, Halloween, October 31st, 2022, is day number 345 since Terrence Crawford uh, has been a free agent since he left top rank and has been a free agent. And there have been zero roadblocks in the way other than the fighters and the management at PBC themselves preventing a fight between Errol Spence Jr. and Terrence Bud Crawford from being signed. 345. We are 20 days out from a year. And of course, we already know now that uh, Terrence Crawford is going to fight David Avenesian, and that's going to be on some obscure pay-per-view platform. That's kind of been interesting to watch all that unfold. And uh, Errol Spence is probably going to fight Keith Thurman, and that's going to be on pay-per-view as well. At least we could say the Crawford one. I think that pay-per-view is 40 bucks. Spence and Thurman, they're going to charge you guys 75 bucks for that. So um, I just find this whole thing hilarious, the way narratives have shifted and all that good stuff. Um, <clears throat> I always find that funny. I'm not going to get into that. Not going to beat that dead horse right now. We don't have the time. All right. Uh, super chat from Anthony Santiago. Thank you so much, Ant. Appreciate it. He says, what's up, Mike and chat? Congratulations to you and your family, Mike. Thank you so much. Thank you very, very much. And Agro Shaolin with the super chat. Thank you very, very much with a big fat super chat. He says, for the Montero family, thank you so much. Oh, man. I like the way that sounds, the Montero family. I just, I like the way that sounds. That's so awesome, man. So awesome. By the way, I took, um, took Jackie for her first walk today, j just before the show. Took her out for her first walk. And she actually went to the bar for the first time with us. Uh, it was either Saturday or Sunday. I can't tell my days apart anymore. So she only made it about a week before actually going to a bar for the first time. Yeah, we all needed a beer. We needed a beer. Literally had two beers and left, guys. It's not like, you know. But yeah, anyway. Let's get into this review. We had a lot of action last weekend. Okay, Saturday, October 29th. Let's plow through these because I know the big fight you guys really want to talk about is Lomachenko. We got a lot to discuss there, okay? Some good, some bad, some ugly. But uh, Saturday, 29 October, Matchroom Boxing put on a card in London at Wembley. This was broadcast on The Zone, of course. And Katie Taylor defends her undisputed lightweight championship for the seventh time successfully, scoring a unanimous decision win over Karen Elizabeth Carvajal. Uh, who is uh, spent most of her career at 130, and she's from Argentina. This was her first fight outside Argentina, her first L. This is pretty much a, a uh, I don't want to say a shutout, but it's close to a sh maybe 9-1, 8-2, right? It was very one-sided, but kind of uneventful fight. So Taylor got in her little in-between fight. Serrano got hers. Now, hopefully, these two ladies do a rematch in early 2023. The demand is there. They both got um, an easy touch, right? After that first that first fight they had earlier this year was grueling. Now they've both had an easy touch. Now they can do a rematch next year. Everything is set up for it. Also on this card, Kiko Martinez scores a TKO4 win over Jordan Gill. Dropped him four times before Gill's corner threw in the towel. This For, uh, for Kiko, this was a comeback from that uh, TKO loss in March 
to Josh Warrington. For Gill, this was the best, at least most experienced opponent of his career. And we've kind of seen his level. You know, one at one point he was an interesting looking prospect. People were really interested to see his development. But as he stepped up, we've kind of seen where his level is, you know, because Kiko is like 472 years old. And for him to uh, just plow through Gill like this uh, says a lot about where his level is. No disrespect, but it just it is what it is. All right, let's come to the United States. Uh, Golden Boy Promotions put on a show in San Diego, California, Pachanga Arena. This, of course, is broadcast on the zone as well. And then the main event, William Zapata, uh, William Zapata Segura improved to 27 and 0 with 23 knockouts. Unanimous decision win over Joseph Diaz Jr. Zapata has had a good year and he has become a player in the lightweight division. We've had a couple players kind of emerge and um, show some, some good form this whole year, but particularly this last weekend in wins and losses. Okay. But that division's really heating up and you're starting to see a turnover. You're starting to see a turnover. The old school is being pushed out. New school is coming up. So uh, Zapata, you know, in beating Diaz, Diaz is a good, solid uh, veteran fighter. Uh, he's undersized at lightweight, doesn't really have any punching power, but he's a very, very good ring general. And for Z Zapata to just put it on him like he did, he set CompuBox records for his work rate, just a, a, over, well over a 1,000 punches. And um, was in fantastic condition. That's what happens when you fight three times in a year. You stay in great shape, man. Zapata this year has wins over Rene Alvarado. That's a good quality win. And Diaz, he's had a very good year. He's had one of the better years of any fighter in the sport. Um, I mean, he's not fighter of the year or anything like that. I'm not suggesting that. But he's just had a very, very good year. Really, really got on the radar for a lot of fans. As for Diaz, over the last two years, 2021, 2022, he is 1-2-1 one, one in his last four bouts. So he's become a guy that's willing to fight anybody, which is great. I really, truly believe he'll get in there and fight anybody. And he's making some money. He's staying busy. Good for him. But he's falling short against top opposition in this weight class. And he's, I'm not going to say he's an opponent yet. He's not becoming an opponent quite yet. But he's going to, he's starting to become a guy that you kind of prove yourself at 135 against, right? And the absolute best of that weight class, Diaz is going to fall short to them. But he's going to give them a tough fight and give them tough rounds. That's the guy he's turning into. Uh, definitely being matched tough. I see Alexander in the chat says that he is being matched tough. I completely agree. Gail says um, Zapata versus Pitbull Cruz. Bring it. I'd love to see that fight. I'd love to see that. And by the way, I actually think Zapata wins that fight. I, I really do. All right. Let's um, real quick. Let, let's go to uh, to the show in uh, Glendale, Arizona, before we get to New York. Glendale, Arizona. Showtime pay-per-view. Yeah, another pay-per-view from that platform. Crazy, right? Jake Paul scores a unanimous decision in eight rounds against Anderson Silva, the 47-year-old MMA GOAT. I don't give a shit what anybody tells me. I know I'm not the most astute, knowledgeable MMA observer, but Anderson Silva is the best fighter in UFC history, bar none. Don't give me that George St. Pierre shit. St. Pierre was very good, very good. Anderson Silva at his best, better. Silva, best MMA fighter ever, at least in the UFC. And I, I firmly believe that. He's the GOAT. In boxing, mediocre. He was actually knocked out in his first fight against a cab driver. 
He is three and two as a boxer. And the two wins he has are, I'm sorry, two of the three wins he has are against very, very limited opposition. Or do I have that backwards? Is he two and three as a boxer? Let me double check that real quick, guys, because like I said, I'm really delirious today. I want to make sure I get this right before I screw it up and I have people shitting down my throat. Yeah, he's three and two. So sorry. He actually, yes, he lost his first fight, uh, his pro debut, and then he came back and won three in a row. And then he just lost this fight to Jake Paul. He was dropped in the eighth round. By the way, a lot of people saying that that knockdown was fake, blah, blah, blah. Guys, the camera angle on the left side makes it look like the punch didn't land. But if you look at the camera angle on the right side, it's very, very clear that the one and the two landed right on the chin from Jake Paul. It was a nice combination that he set up well, and he deserves credit for it. So that knockdown was legit. Paul won this fight. Uh, had no business being on pay-per-view, blah, blah, blah. We can argue that all day. But Jake Paul won this fight. Anyway, for Silva, I'm not trying to diss the guy. But as a boxer, he's mediocre. Okay, And I say that because this is the best opponent Jake Paul has fought. The real embarrassing thing, the true embarrassment, is that Julio Cesar Chavez Jr. lost to Anderson Silva last year in Mexico. Okay, so, so it was basically his backyard. He lost to Anderson Silva. That is an absolute embarrassment for Chavez. Should have never happened. Chavez should have dominated and stopped Anderson Silva. Even, even the crazy-ass Fruit Loop, high as fuck, drink, smoking whatever he's smoking, eating Fruit Loops in his underwear, Chavez Jr. That dude should still have dominated and stopped Anderson Silva. The fact that he lost to him is the biggest embarrassment of his entire boxing life. But what I've already seen on Twitter is Jake Paul fans and the promotion saying, Jake Paul just beat a guy in Anderson Silva, who is the GOAT in MMA, and beat a former quote-unquote champion boxer in Chavez Jr. That's the way this is being spun. And it's difficult. It's hard for me to break that down, the insanity and bullshit of that, because technically speaking, it's true. I get it. But to break down all the nuance and just the, the hyperbole of all that, the propaganda of it all, to my casual sports fan friends, my UFC uh, fan friends, it, it's almost impossible. But um, that's that's where we're at. Now, how much credit do we give Jake Paul here? Um, he did win this fight, and you know he he did get the knockdown, which was legit. He didn't look great at times, but at other times he he did look pretty solid. He closed well. Um, I, I don't want to spend too much time breaking this fight down because it was a circus act. But I, I will give I got to give Jake Paul this much credit, regardless of all the pay per view stuff, and I'm not even going to get into all that. Just in terms of being a boxer, okay, this guy had no amateur career, right? He he had, what, one amateur fight? Maybe two? I can't even remember. He had a shorter amateur career than I've had, okay? And then he goes pro, and he has beat. Now, now look, I, I don't get the his win over Gibb, Robinson, Ben Askren. I don't really rate those wins at all. But beating Tyrone Woodley and Anderson Silva, Again, those guys are not very good boxers. I'd probably beat them. I don't know if I'd sleep them, knock them out, 
like Paul did, but I, I probably beat them by decision, right? Um, but for for Paul to handle himself the way he has, and to do that for a guy who's only been boxing for a couple years, for maybe three years, that give him some credit. Give him some credit. After this fight, though, he called out um, uh, Canelo Alvarez. I mean, obviously that's ridiculous, and he's just doing that for marketing purposes. But um, for, I think it was Mauricio Suleiman, and there was different people in the boxing community. The Zone tweeted something out that said, um, the hype is real, or believe the hype. It's like, guys, come on. I mean, they're jumping on the bandwagon to make money, but slow the F down, okay? Beating a 47-year-old Anderson Silva does not mean you're ready to take on the likes of a top 20-rated boxer. All right, let's move on from that. The less I say about it, the better. I just want to make sure I'm not missing any super chats. Okay. <clears throat> all right, let's uh, let's go to New York because this is the one I know you guys all want me to talk about. Top rank, New York City, Madison Square Garden, ESPN+. Plus. And several of the top-ranked 2020 American Olympians got W's on the undercard. Duke Reagan, Troy Isley, uh, Richard Torres, Delante Johnson, all got W's and several other prospects. So top rank kept their prospects busy, which I love. They do that better than any other platform, particularly in American boxing. And uh, all they're, they're keeping those, those Olympians busy and getting them exposure and getting them W's. I like it. Robisi Ramirez scored a TKO nine win over Jose Matias Romero in the co-main. Ramirez has had a good 2022 as well. He's had a pretty solid year, uh, getting himself into contention. And um, I just like what I like his body of work in 2022. He's done a fine job. All right. Main event. Vasily Lomachenko, unanimous decision win over Jermaine Ortiz. Most people had this as a close fight, 115-113. At best, you could go 116-112 for Loma. A couple of the scorecards felt a little too wide. Some people out there scored the fight for Ortiz. That's not what took place. I thought that Lomachenko edged the fight because of his work in the later rounds. Early on, if you had Ortiz ahead, I could see that. But in the middle rounds, Loma found his rhythm. And then late, the class and more so the experience showed from Lomachenko. For Ortiz, these were great rounds, and he's definitely a player at lightweight. I talked earlier about uh, William Zapata, and for Jermaine Ortiz, he's definitely a guy that is now a player in that division. That division's got a lot of talent right now. Um, these guys just all got to fight each other. Anyway, so for Lomachenko, this was his first fight of the year, coming off an 11-month layoff. Other than the COVID pandemic, which delayed, I think, his 2020 um, ring debut. This is the longest layoff of his career. So this is the longest layoff of Lomachenko's career where it was on him. Cause of course, during the layoff, he couldn't fight over that summer cause everything was shut down. So I think he had a slightly longer layoff in 2020, which almost every, every boxer had the longest layoff of their career that year. Other than that, this was the longest layoff of Lomachenko's career. And it showed, um, he looked a little rusty to put it Bluntly, up front, for Ortiz, this was the third fight of 2022 for him. So he was in a very good rhythm and started very, very well. And, of course, he was coming off that uh, win over Jamel Herring. And I saw Jamel tweet after the fight, 
and I'm paraphrasing, but he basically said, Hey man, you know, I got dissed when, when I lost to this guy and they said I was, you know, shot to shit, whatever. Now look what he just did against Loma. He had a pretty good fight against Loma. Now you guys can see this dude's for real. He's a legit fighter. He's somebody to keep an eye on. That's basically what Jamel said. And I agree with him. So for Ortiz, very good year, uh, beating Herring, basically sending Herring into retirement. Right. And um, that kind of brought him onto the conscious of a lot of fight fans here in America and then having a good fight with Lomachenko where it felt eight, nine rounds in, he was kind of boxing even with Loma. So that alone is a very, very good accomplishment for him. And he will get better from this. I think he'll be a better fighter going forward for it. A lot of people are talking about Loma though. Oh man, how is he going to look when, not if, when him and Devin Heaney fight next spring? So there's a lot of people, uh, I should mention, Devin Heaney was there at, at the Garden and uh, got in the ring. And, of course, him and Loma chopped it up. And, you know, the, the promotion got that whole thing going. Uh, Alexander Usyk was there as well. And um, there's been a lot of talk, right, because there, there's people out there that think Devin Heaney is going to duck Lomachenko. There are people out there that think Loma is going to duck Devin Heaney. There are people out there that don't think Devin Heaney can make 135 one last time. All this conjecture. Let me tell you guys what's going to happen. All right. As long as Devin Heaney can safely make 135, and I think he can if he stays disciplined over the holidays, I think we're going to get this fight next spring. Lomachenko will look a little bit better in that fight than he looked in this fight because the ring rust will be gone. He'll also take Haney a lot more seriously than he took Ortiz. I think Ortiz, not that he took him lightly, but he wasn't going in there expecting this kind of challenge, um, regardless of what he said, I'm just telling you guys, that's, that's my gut feel on it. I think he'll show up in even better shape and be sharper for Devin Haney because he'll expect the, the, the toughest fight of his career, honestly. And he'll also be over that layoff and he'll be in a better rhythm. However, if Devin Haney can safely make 135, his, he's basically a welterweight who squeezes down to lightweight. Lomachenko, as we know, is basically a featherweight who bulks up to lightweight and for years has been fighting much naturally larger men with mixed results. He beat most of them, but we saw what happened against Tiafima Lopez. Uh, and he's been dropped. He was dropped by Jorge Linares. He's lost rounds. He lost rounds to Ortiz, of course, this Saturday. So clearly he's not the same guy at 135 that he was at 130. 126. And it's obvious, and his team has stated this on record multiple times, he could easily make 130 right now, and he could work back down to 126 if he really wanted to for the right fight. So this is a guy that's bulking up. Meanwhile, Haney, again, again is a guy that's killing himself, really killing himself to make 135. He's maybe got one more fight before he moves up to 140, and he won't even last there that long. He'll be at 147 soon enough. So how will all this affect the fight? I got to tell you, I think the odds makers, the bookmakers are going to have Haney as the betting favorite next spring. Put this on record. Next spring, when these two fight, odds makers will have Haney as the favorite, the betting favorite in Vegas. Um, now, look, it, it's it's 100% possible that Haney and his people say, we just can't make 135. They dump the belts. They move up to 140. Okay, assuming that doesn't happen, this fight does happen next spring. It's what 
both sides wants, what the promotion wants. It's what ESPN wants. And it's what the American boxing establishment definitely wants. Because if Haney can beat Lomachenko, he has that legit W on his resume. Because right now, he's beat a couple of solid guys. Okay? But he doesn't really have a name against an elite-level opponent. He just doesn't. And that's not a knock on Devin Haney. All right? But if you if we're being honest, George Cambosos is not an old, even an old Lomachenko. He's he's not on that level. He's just not. The Lomachenko we saw against Ortiz this Saturday beats George Cambosos. Yes, I'm saying that on record. And I get it. Loma lost to Tio, who lost to George, who lost to Haney. I get it. I get it. I don't do the triangle theory thing and styles make fights. So here's another argument. People are saying, um, you know, Lomachenko shouldn't have stayed in Ukraine and he should have, because guys, this was all worked out. And believe me, I've talked to people on both sides of the deal and even government officials. This was worked out where Lomachenko was going to go to Australia and fight Cambosos this spring. Okay. That's what was going to happen and fight for the legitimate lightweight championship of the world. And then at that time, keep in mind at that time, Devin Haney was a free agent. He was not signed to top rank. All right. Devin Haney found a, an amazing opportunity. He put it bluntly. He won the motherfucking lottery when the war in Ukraine broke out. I hate to put it that way, but that's the reality. Now, all credit to Haney for doing what he had to do. Signed with top rank, agreed to a rematch clause, agreed to travel to Australia twice, went over there and did his thing against Cambosos. Credit to him. But if real peep real, right? Game peep game. What was supposed to happen, the script, was Vasily Lomachenko was supposed to go to Australia this spring, early this year, and fight George Cambosos for the legitimate Unified lightweight championship of the world, the championship that he lost to Tiafiba Lopez the year prior, or maybe two years prior. Um, I can't keep up with my years right now because I'm deliriously exhausted. But that's what was supposed to happen. And Lomachenko made a choice to stay in Ukraine and help and support the war effort when that conflict started. Because when that conflict over in Ukraine started, when Russia invaded Ukraine, people didn't know how long it was going to last. They didn't know how it was going to look. Um, it was basically, it looked like on paper at that time, David versus Goliath. Now I'm not going to get into the politics of the thing and how America's jumped in and all this other stuff. I'm not even going to get into all that, but at the time it looked like David versus Goliath, right? And Loma and Usyk and several other Ukrainian boxers, Victor Polstol comes to mind. There are others ended up going over there and, and either just being around family or supporting the war effort in different ways. Now, Lomachenko, Usyk, et cetera, they're not soldiers. They're not even government officials over there like a Vitaly Klitschko is. So they're not serving maybe on the front lines or anything like that, but they were definitely involved in the, the war effort and supporting their country. So there will always be a debate whether Lomachenko did the right thing by staying over there as long as he did um, and, and delaying his eventual shot at this lightweight championship or not? Was it the right decision or not? Nobody can really answer that but him. Um, I don't really have an opinion one way or the other on it. The one thing I will say, though, is literally 99% of athletes in his in that situation today probably wouldn't have stayed in Ukraine. 
and would have went for the money and particularly the quote unquote, I'm using air quotes here, easy championship fight against Cambosos. I'm not saying that fight would have been easy. Cambosos would have given Loma some work, made him work for it. But Loma obviously would have been a massive favorite against Cambosos over there, even in Australia. And I think it's um, it's not conjecture at all to say that most would have favored him to win and regain that lightweight championship. And then um, at that point, maybe him and Haney can negotiate a deal, whatever. But remember, Haney wasn't with top rank at the time. So a deal would have had to been worked out as such to basically all the advantages Cambosos got in that deal with Haney, Lomachenko would have got in a deal with Haney had it worked out that way. You guys know what I'm saying? You know what I'm getting at? So now that situation's different, very different, because Haney is the undisputed lightweight champion of the world. He is the A-side. He gets uh, to determine all the parameters of that fight, right? Internationally, Lomachenko is the much larger name, but the guy with the hardware and the guy with the momentum going into this potential matchup is Devin Haney. Back to my 99% comment, though. I think that even if you disagree with Lomachenko's decision, I think it's pretty damn admirable that he turned down a massive payday. What likely could have been, may have been, probably would have been a career-high payday and a, a shot at that championship to stay and support his country. Probably wasn't the best move for his boxing career. And there's been a couple of times in Lomachenko's career where he has made decisions that weren't necessarily in the best interest of his career development, but he did what he felt was the right thing. And it worked against him. In his second pro fight, he fought Orlando Salido. I can't think of another high-level, elite-level boxer from America or anywhere else in the world in the last 20 years who's done something like that. It ended up working against him, right? Also, Salido uh, didn't make weight, was a welterweight basically on that night. Loma still went forward with the fight. There are plenty of other fighters that would have said, nope, ain't doing it. Or he's got to cut down to this catch weight, blah, blah, blah. He didn't do any of that. He went into the ring. Now, maybe you could say it was overconfidence. That's fine. But he made the decision a fighter would make. And it worked against him. When he fought Tiafima Lopez, he didn't need to do that fight. He didn't need Tio at all. But he went forward with that fight and did it, and it worked against him, sure. Um, but there are a lot of star, quote-unquote, star fighters in that situation that would have not signed that fight. Jesus, we can't get Gervonta Davis and Ryan, Ryan Garcia to fight anybody with a pulse. And Gervonta Davis is fighting on pay-per-view. Do you think he would fight a guy like Tiafima Lopez if he doesn't have to? Of course not. Loma did, right? And then this year with the situation in Ukraine, oh man, I could go back to, I could go over to Australia, get back my world titles, get back as my status as the legit lightweight champion of the world, then go over to Ukraine and support the war effort. And I could go over there with eight figures more money in my, my pocket. Loma didn't do that. So this guy has made decisions that some boxing fans may not like, but morally, ethically, it's hard to root against the guy. It just is. All that being said, here's the question. 
is Vasily Lomachenko overrated? Because I saw a lot of that talk this weekend after the fight with Jermaine uh, Ortiz. And of course, he's he has lost fights. I don't really look at the Salido fight as, as, I mean, technically it's a loss, don't get me wrong, but I don't really look at it as an L because it was his second freaking fight. Who gives a shit? 99% of champions right now, if they fought a guy on the level of Salido in their second fight, probably would have lost. And yes, I'm including guys like Floyd Mayweather, Oscar De La Hoya, and the like in that discussion. Even those guys in their second, fifth, tenth fight didn't fight a guy at Orlando Salido's level. So let's give some credit here. I don't really care about that. But the loss to Tiafima Lopez, particularly now, it doesn't look very good. This performance didn't look very good, right? So some people are saying this guy's always been overrated. And, and, and for different reasons, Lomachenko's always been a guy that has um, divided segments of, of fans. And trigger warning ready, okay? You guys are going to have to tight, tighten up your asshole a little bit for the next few seconds. Loma is a little different, something different. And a lot of fans were excited because when most fans in any sport, when they see something different that they haven't quite seen before, they get excited about it. They, and, and perhaps that does lead to a little bit of um, them overrating or fanboying out. But most of all, they're just excited to see something different and somebody that kind of changes the game and opens doors. Um, and that's what Loma is. But there's that little segment that when they see something different, they freak out. It, it, it scares them because this is something different than we're used to seeing. This is uncomfortable. And I think Lomachenko did that with some people. Um, the way Loma came onto the scene and boxed, the style he boxed with, with and continues to box with, but particularly at 126, where he was really special, 126, 130, really, really special. The way he sunned Gary Russell Jr. and Guillermo Rigondeaux, particularly those two fights, but we could throw Nicholas Walters and a couple others in there. The way he absolutely sunned those guys really bothered some people. Now, these people are a fraction of a percent of boxing fans, but they're very, very loud. They have a megaphone. And so there are some folks out there that were just upset um, and just want this guy to fail. I will compare this to the first time we saw in the NFL some black quarterbacks succeed at a really high level as pocket passers, as team leaders, as guys that uh, could get the job done and win the big game and win Super Bowls and win MVP awards and become the highest paid player, the number one draft pick. We saw that. The first couple of times we saw that, there was a reaction from some fans in the United States. They didn't like that shit. Now it's pretty normal. Some of those guys early on really paved the way now for some of these guys like Lamar Jackson right now, okay? Sorry for the quick football reference, but that's honestly how I view Lomachenko in a certain way. I'm not saying it's an exact parallel, okay? Don't get me wrong. There's nuance there. But the way he boxes, his athleticism, his movement, all of it, you're not used to seeing that from a guy from Eastern Europe, Asia, Latin America, the UK. 
You're only used to seeing that in the eyes of some people whose brains are stuck in the freaking past from guys from the United States. And if Vasily Lomachenko's name was Jermaine Williams and he was from Chicago or Detroit or DC or something, people in the American media might respond to him a little bit differently. Some fans might respond to him a little differently. Anyway, how do I personally feel about Lomachenko? Is he overrated? Um, Yes and no. And I can say that about every single fighter today. I can say that about every single athlete today. It, bottom line, guys, it depends who you talk to. It depends who you talk to. Does ESPN and Bob Arum and that entire apparatus overrate Vasily Lomachenko? Yes, of course. They overrate everybody. Bob Arum compares everybody to Muhammad Ali. Everybody, every new, new star fighter he has. Didn't he compare Pacquiao to him? Didn't he compare Loma to him, right? Um, and, and the Pacquiao comparison I can see socially in certain ways, socially, okay? But the, the, the constant comparisons to fighters from the past, and, and Joe Tessitore has compared him to Pernell Whitaker and guys like that. That's what promoters do. That's what networks do. Over at PBC on Fox and Showtime, they would put graphics of Deontay Wilder's title defenses of the WBC and compare it to Joe Lewis and Vladimir Klitschko and Larry Holmes, okay? And in DAZN and Matchroom, they do this as well. Anthony Joshua, they were making comparisons between him and some of the greats. And so every single promotion and every single mainstream sports media platform does this. So, yeah. If you're talking to certain people, Lomachenko is overrated, just like Floyd Mayweather, just like Tyson Fury, just like Manny Pacquiao, just like Roy Jones Jr. I, I mean, I, I could keep going. Just like Muhammad Ali. Yeah, I said it. He's also underrated, depending who you talk to. The very small but very, very vocally loud audience that I talked about a minute ago that made some of you uncomfortable. Those people probably underrate him. Just like there are people out there that hate Floyd Mayweather. Floyd could cure cancer. And they'll say, what about AIDS, bro? Pfft, asshole, right? And I'm not a big fan of Floyd Mayweather as a human being, but as a fighter, there are people out there that actually underrate Floyd. There are people out there that actually underrate Pacquiao, et cetera, et cetera. It depends who you talk to. When you look at what Loma has done, and the way he's done it, the style with which he's done it, he has created opportunities and broke down barriers and opened doors for fighters in the future. We are used to seeing American boxing fans and, and, and martial arts fans, not just boxing, but all martial arts. They are used to seeing fighters from Eastern Europe. They've been seeing it now for, for decades. But they're used to seeing those guys be heavyweights, bigger guys. They're not used to seeing featherweights who can move with the athleticism of any American featherweight, actually better, like Lomachenko. They're not used to seeing that shit. So he, that's why I mean he's so different. They're used to when when people think of a name like Vasily Lomachenko, they're thinking of a tall, lumbering heavyweight. That's the stereotype, right? Well, he broke every single damn one of those stereotypes. 
So there will be other guys like Loma in the future. In the next 20 years, we're going to see guys from, whether it be Ukraine, Russia, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, whatever, that uh, Poland, maybe, Belarus, from that part of the world that are going to be little guys, bantamweight, featherweight, lightweight, welterweight, that move like that, that aren't just jab, 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 jab and grab, jab, jab, jab and grab, the stereotype, but guys who actually can use footwork and head movement and their defense is their movement. It's not smothering and grabbing and holding and clinching right, or running, whatever. It's actually circling guys and making them honestly look foolish at times, the way Loma did to Gary Russell Jr. and Guillermo Rigondeo. You're going to see more of it. And it was Loma who paved the way for that. Not the only one, not the first, but he was the first guy that came to America, signed with a major promoter from the, from the beginning of his pro career, with, as he did with Top Rank, and did it that way. Then when you combine his amateur career, and by the way, you can say that the pro game is watered down now, and I agree. And it's, it's not because of a lack of talent. There's actually more talent now, top to bottom, than at any point in boxing history. I know that's controversial to say that. I'm not saying in America. I'm saying globally. The problem now is you got 8,000 different promoters, networks, sanctioning bodies. So these guys aren't all fighting each other the way they used to have to. When it was basically just an American sport, all the top guys had to fight each other. Boxing 80, 90 years ago looked the way UFC looks now, right? So that's different. Uh-oh. I think I think you guys are going to – we have an appearance. Check this out. Come here. Say hi. Everybody say hi to Jackie. Jackie the Ripper. Say hi, baby. Say hi. She's wearing her Halloween costume. <laughs> is she milk drunk right now? Yeah, she is. <laughs> Hey, baby. You going to say hi to everybody? The lights are making her look cross. <laughs> there she is. She is, uh, she's Jackie the Ripper, a week and a day old. Hey, baby. You going to say hi to everybody? Say hi. Everybody listening on audio right now is like, what the hell is going on? Yeah, you coming? You coming for him, babe? You'll start hitting that heavy bag soon. Hi, right, baby. All right. Bye-bye. Did she just eat? Yeah. Oh, that's why she's milk drunk? Okay. Yeah, when she eats, um, she basically passes out, which is great, which is great. Because when she wakes up, holy shit is on. Okay, uh, where was I? Loma. So overrated? Yes. Underrated? Yes. Um, his amateur career, though, I want to talk about this real quick because I was talking about the pros, how you can make an argument that's watered down. So you can't really compare guys now to guys of yesteryear. I kind of agree with that to a certain extent. But amateurs, I really think the amateurs now could compete with the amateurs of 50 years ago, even 100 years ago. In fact, I think the amateurs now are stronger than they were 50 years ago, 100 years ago. You have more international, global representation. Um, you have more kids starting boxing earlier, not just here in America, but globally. The amateur scene now, top to bottom, I know this will be controversial for some of you, it is stronger today than it was in the past. Yes, I'm including the 70s, the 90s, the 50s. Yep, I'm saying it. Go ahead and hate me if you want. 
So the amateur career that Vasily Lomachenko had, and by the way, Guillermo Rigondeaux, because I mentioned him, but there's plenty of other guys I can mention, right? Uh, amateur standouts in the last 10, 20 years, let's say. Those careers really hold up historically. You really can compare them. If you are going to multiple Olympics, multiple world championships, and winning gold medal after gold medal after gold medal, and you're winning 300-plus amateur fights, that shit holds up historically. And what he did there and then coming into the pros and doing what he's done, it is special. That being said, I'm not so sure Devin Haney doesn't outpoint him when they fight next spring. I'm not so sure Shakur Stevenson wouldn't win a 8-4-9-3 kind of fight against Lomachenko right now. Not just because he'd be grossly undersized against those fighters, but the age difference. Guys, he's not just, I think he's what, 35 or so? He had almost 400 amateur fights. And then he's been fighting naturally larger guys now for the last few years. That takes a toll on your body. And Loma is a guy, I talked earlier about his style, right? He is a guy that depends on movement to win fights. He's not a guy that stands there in the pocket in trades with you and uses power, which is the stereotype of fighters from that part of the world. A guy like, um, well, I could name a million guys, but you guys know who I'm going to go to. I mean, a guy like Klitschko or whatever, that's just going to stand there, jab, 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 big right hand, sledgehammer, right hand, right? That's the stereotype. Loma don't fight that way. His style will age quickly, particularly against guys that he is grossly undersized against. Now, the Lomachenko haters will say, oh, Montero's making preemptive excuses. No, I'm not. I'm just telling you the reality of the situation. We've seen this a few times. We've been here, right? If, if boxing fans who have been around, we've seen the way these things have played out. Let, let, let's look at Roy Jones Jr. Not that I'm comparing Roy and Loma in terms of their fighting style, but Roy, in a way, used athleticism, movement, right? Uh, quickness, speed, for to win to dominate fights he's the guy who went up and wait and i won't get into how he did that but he would get up and went up and wait and fought bigger guys for a while but once those things started to slow down he really struggled right and i see the same similar future for lomachenko oh man johnny's combat talk in news with the super chat thank you so much johnny i appreciate the paisan he says mike you're spot on with this loma segment god bless paisan Hope the house is coming along well. Congrats to La Familia. Thank you so much, man. Grazie mille. I appreciate it. Yeah, so I hope you guys uh, are with me on the Loma thing. I know some of you may have been slightly triggered. I apologize, but I just can't help myself. I got to tell the truth. I got to tell my truth. And here's the thing. You don't have to agree 100%, but you can at least respect my argument, right? It's not coming crazy out of like nowhere, right? There's some... Uh, logic to it. Yeah. Even if you completely disagree, you got to admit there's some logic to it. All right, let's do this preview guys. And then I got to get out of here. Um, preview time. There's actually fights tomorrow, Tuesday, November 1st in Japan and Saitama, Japan. And I mentioned this because there's, there's a potential build here. Um, junior flyweight. This is 108 pounds. These guys are smaller than my wife. But the little dudes always deliver in action, okay? Kenshiro Taraji and his WBC belt going up against Hiroto Kayoguchi 
and his WBA belt. So those guys are going to unify junior lightweight, I'm sorry, junior flyweight belts in Japan. In the co-main, here's what's interesting. Puerto Rico's Jonathan Gonzalez will defend his WBO version of the belt against uh, another Japanese fighter, uh, Shokichi Iwata. This will be the second defense of his title. So the winners of those two fights can do a potential three-belt unification next. And the one thing that those really, really small weight classes need, you're talking 105 up to like 118, those divisions need unification. You need a top guy um, really, really bad. Those divisions need unification much, much more than the heavier divisions. And you don't really see this a lot in Japanese boxing. It's one thing I'm really critical of with the Japanese boxers. They don't unify belts a lot. They win their little version of the belt and defend it 20 times, and that's that. Or they'll move up and down three, three pounds because those divisions are separated by three pounds. And they'll win one version of the belt. With one sanctioning organization, they, they, have, they create a cozy relationship with, and they just move up and down and win belts. I want to see more unification over there. So I like this a lot. That's why I wanted to mention it. All right, Saturday, November 5th, you got two cards. Uh, TGB Promotions in Minneapolis. This is going to be a PBC event on Showtime, regular Showtime. Believe it or not, Showtime still does boxing that's not pay-per-view sometimes. I know, it's crazy. And this is one of those cards. David Morrell Jr., one of the um, prospering young talents at Super Middleweights, going up against a Kazakhstan native, uh, Eidos Yurabasanuli, Yurabasanuli, 16-0. Now, you hear Kazakhstan, 16-0, and you might think, wow, this is going to be a tough fight. I looked at this guy's resume. I looked at his amateur career. Uh, I think this is going to be a clear win for Morrell. That's what I'm expecting anyway. I think this is going to be a showcase fight for him. The big event, though, this weekend is in Abu Dhabi, United Arab Emirates on the zone. This is a joint promotion between Matchroom and Golden Boy. The Yafai brothers fighting in 10-rounders on the undercard. Uh, a undisputed 140-pound championship fight, female, between Chantel, Chantel Cameron and Jessica McCaskill. What's interesting about this fight, and I got to note this, three of the belts are vacant. So it's for undisputed, but, I mean, really, the WBA, WBO, and IBO belts that are on the line are all vacant. So those sanctioned organizations are just jumping into this fight. The sanctioned organizations have learned who runs women's boxing. His name is Sir Edward of Hearn. And anytime he's doing a, a fight like this, they jump in. So they're, they're adding three vacant belts to this so it could be called an undisputed championship fight. I like this fight. Don't get it twisted. I like this fight. But I have to put on record that three of the four, uh, actually, if you include the IBO, uh, three of the five belts are vacant. So Cameron currently has the IBF and WBC belt. And McCaskill is the current undisputed welterweight champion. So if she wins this fight, she will be the simultaneous undisputed 140 and 147 champion. That is pretty significant. That will be a big accomplishment on her behalf. And McCaskill, what I like about her, she is willing to stamp her passport and fight anybody anywhere. So that's pretty great. Also, the co-main on this card, Shavkatsan Rakamov, an L.A.-based, Los Angeles-based, Tajikistan native, going up against U.K. native Zelfa Barrett, 
for the vacant IBF 130-pound belt. That's junior lightweight. So that's an interesting fight. And then the main event, I am looking forward to this fight more than I have looked forward to any fight for a while. Dimitri Bivol, 20-0, and 0, going up against Gilberto Ramirez, 44-0 and 0 for Bivol's WBA Light Heavyweight Championship. Bivol, of course, coming off that fantastic, dominant, near-shutout performance against Canelo Alvarez earlier this year. If he looks impressive in this fight and clearly, definitively defeats Zerdo Ramirez, he is a lock for 2022 Fighter of the Year. Now, Zerdo is going to pose a big challenge. So, you know, I, I, I don't want to, like, glance over it. I just stick it with this subject for just a second. If Bevel were to do that, I do wonder if politics may play a part in him possibly not getting fighter of the year honors because he's from <clears throat> Russia. I know I can't say that word. YouTube will demonetize this video, but <clears throat> he's Russian. So that might work against him um, politically. I hope not. I hope that doesn't happen. However, Zerto is a massive, massive challenge. And there is a very, very good chance for him to win this fight. Bivol is the favorite. He should be. He's the more proven fighter, particularly at 175. And he's coming off that great, great win against Canelo. But Ramirez pretty much is a heavyweight on fight night. Somehow this guy makes 175. Somehow he swells up 20 plus pounds in the 24, 30 or so hours after the weigh-in. Do not be surprised if he enters the ring at 200 pounds against Bivol, who earlier this year was punching at an undersized super middleweight in Canelo Alvarez. Now he's going to be punching up at a very, very physical, very, very active, tall, rangy, offensive-minded Gilberto Ramirez. Make no mistake, this will be a very, very competitive fight. And style-wise, I'm looking forward to this, man. I'm looking, though, at these two resumes, right? And Zerto's resume for 44 fights is pretty shitty. It just is. It's, it's you know, I get on guys like Gervonta Davis, Jaime Munguia, guys like that. I got to be consistent here. Zerto Ramirez's resume is pretty shitty. He has fought a couple of solid fighters here and there, but he hasn't fought anybody like Bivol. Nobody like that. I mean, he fought Maxim Vlasov. Maybe that's somewhat comparable. But I'm just trying to think, is there a guy he's fought that – now, Bivol has a unique style, but just the, the long, straight punches. You know, again, Maxim Vlasov, maybe. But how long ago was that fight? I, I Don't quote me, but I want to say that was like six, seven years ago. It feels like it was anyway. But for Bivol, a lot of people are saying, man, he hasn't fought a big, physically strong fighter like this. Because Zerto is probably going to be the biggest, strongest guy he's ever fought. And my response to that is, fool, he fought Joe Smith Jr. And I get it. Zerto's a big, strong guy. But Joe Smith Jr. is stronger, physically stronger, and physically hits harder than Zerto Ramirez. And um, Bivol pretty much dog-walked Joe Smith. Right now, Joe was able to hurt him late. He was, and I get it. Joe Smith is not not nearly as active. He doesn't punch as much, and he also doesn't do the infighting that Zerto does. I, I get it. I'm not saying their style is the same, 
But the physicality, the strength, if he could handle Joe Smith Jr., I think he's going to handle Zerda Ramirez. And just in terms of skills, experience, and then fighting on that big stage in Las Vegas early this year against Canelo, beating him the way he did, the confidence beaming like it is, I got to take Dimitri Bevel in this fight. I do think it's going the distance. I absolutely think it will be competitive. But I'm, I'm seeing like a 116-112 type of win for Dimitri Bevel. And if that happens, as I am predicting, guys, am I wrong? He has to be fighter of the year. Whooping Canelo Alvarez, dominating a guy that has just – you know, had a dominant performance afterwards against Gennady Golovkin, a faded, well past his best Golovkin, I get it. But before that stopped, Caleb Plant stopped Billy Joe Saunders, uh, you know, had a, a good run F for Bivol to beat him the way he did. And then, and keep in mind, this guy's Russian, went to Vegas to do that. Now he's going to Abu Dhabi to fight Zerto, completely different style, completely different fighter. Different size, strength, length, all of it. If he beats him soundly, 116, 112-ish, like I predict, he's the fighter of the year. You guys tell me, am I right or am I right? <clears throat> okay. Gail says uh, the only competitors for Bivol as fighter of the year would be Bam Rodriguez and Roman Gonzalez if he beats Estrada. Good shout-out, Gail. I didn't even... I, you're right about Bam Rodriguez. Um, of course, we already know Bam right now is the front runner, in my opinion. He's the front runner. But Roman Gonzalez, you're right. If he beats Estrada, he's up there too. He's up there too. All right, guys. Anybody else in the chat got a comment on that? There's you guys are talking about Usyk in the chat. Usyk, what's Usyk got to do with this? Uh, I'm not seeing any other uh, guys. What do you think about my, uh, Oh, this is interesting. King KO says, Naoya in a way could be fighter of the year. Okay. By the way, I have to, I, I, this wasn't popular when I said this on Twitter, but you have to put Devin Haney in there as a candidate for fighter of the year. Say what you will about George Cambosos. Haney went over to Australia twice and dominated him, that puts him in the conversation. I'm not saying Devin Haney is the fighter of the year. He wouldn't be my pick, but he's in the top five. Guys, he went on the road twice and, and became the undisputed lightweight champion and then defended that championship. I also think you have to include Jermel Charlo in the conversation, at least in the top 10 candidates for being the undisputed uh, junior middleweight champion of the year and having a dominant performance. The only thing that's holding him back is he only had one fight and there's no excuse. Alexander Usyk is certainly a candidate um, for his win over Anthony Joshua. And he only fought once, but he has an excuse, right? That was a pound for pound level win because he was fighting a guy 50 pounds naturally bigger um, who is, you know, a top three heavyweight. So let me see. I thought I saw a super chat. Oh, Anthony Santiago with the super chat. He says, Mike, what run in the past couple of years will be better than Canelo Zerto Beterbiev? Damn, dude, that's a good question. Thank you for the super chat. Listen, a lot has to happen for that to take place, what you just laid out. But if Bevel beats, well, he already beat Canelo, but if he beats Zerto and then next spring fights and beats Beterbiev, whoo, 
bro. I can't think of a better run than that in recent years. Um, I'd have to actually, I'm deliriously tired. I'd have to like sit down and really think about that for a while. Cause there's gotta be some names, right? There's definitely gotta be some names we could throw out there, but that'd be an impressive run. A very impressive run. Yeah. Several of you guys think that, um, Usyk is your fighter of the year. I get it. I get it. Um, I can't put Usyk as fighter of the year though, over Bam Rodriguez or Bivol because they're just more active. And I get it. Usyk has an excuse. His country's at war. I understand that. He's a candidate. He's in the top five, but I can't put him over Bam or Bevel should Bevel win this weekend. I just can't. <laughs> Alexander says, what about Tank? Ha <laughs> LOL. Gail says, agree 100% with you about Haney. I was just about to comment exactly the same top four. Yeah, Haney is in there by default. Look, traveled over to Australia, got that W twice. Um, all right. And Gail says, you can make a case for Katie Taylor as fighter of the year as well. She's definitely the female fighter of the year uh, because of her two wins. You definitely got to put her in there. Although you could definitely make a case for Clarissa Shields. Um, but again, activity. I got to give the edge to Taylor there. Got to give the edge to Taylor. Uh, and Miguel says, forgot about Bam. Nah, I ain't forget about Bam. Bam right now is the front runner for fighter of the year. Definitely front runner. But if Bivol beats Zerto, Bam did not beat better opponents than Bivol. Bivol would supersede him and be fighter of the year. All right, guys. Uh, let's get one last comment on here. Kim Sational32 says, I'm so stoked to see Bivol versus Zerto. Great fight. Bivol is truly impressive. And if he's, uh, and yes, I agree. He's an absolute consideration for fighter of the year, in my honest opinion. Thank you so much, Kim. You obviously know your boxing. All right, guys. That's it. Uh, man, I thought I'd go like 30, 40 minutes. Here I am at an hour and 11. Guys, uh, I had fun chatting boxing with you. I am going to uh, try to take a nap. <laughs> Enjoy the rest of your week. We'll try to do a Friday show if I'm able to, and we'll do phones on that show, all right? Uh, I love you guys. Thank you so much for everything, and um, we'll see you in a few, all right? Peace. <laughs>